0: when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A N G I.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget.
1: Hey guys, welcome back to Thick and Thin with me, Katie Bilotti, and happy Christmas Eve if you're listening to this the day that it drops. I have been pre recording like crazy, trying to get everything done before I officially take off for the holidays. It's interesting because as a self employed person, you know, you kind of have to make your own off days and your own schedule and things like that and it always gets tricky especially when you do lifestyle content for a living because your life tends to blend into your work obviously and so it's kind of hard to strike boundaries. I think I did it right this year. I've been you know doing a lot, doing vlogmas, posting every day on YouTube or nearly every day on YouTube and then just trying to on the back end get things done Uh, before Christmas week so we'll see it is Friday as I'm recording this and next week is Christmas week so we will see what I can get done I'm hoping to be done with everything by like Tuesday but we shall see so, anywho, today's episode of Thick and Thin is probably the most dazzling episode I have ever made because we are talking about diamonds, the diamond rush, the diamond industry. And then also, we're going to talk in the beginning about goals, setting goals, and why they're so freaking scary. <laughs> so, I first do want to kick things off talking about goals, about being a gold digger, if you will. Just imagine Kanye West's gold digger playing somewhere softly in the distance as I'm speaking. But in all seriousness, I have been giving the future a lot of thought recently, and it probably has something to do with the fact that this year has definitely been a weird one, one for the books. We'll always look back on 2020 and likely 2021 and think about what we're going through right now and how weird it was. And so I think a lot of us are kind of looking into the future and trying to see what's out there and what is next for us after things hopefully get back to normal and all of those sorts of things. So I've been you know, giving a lot of thought to the dreams that I have for myself and I really wanted to sit down and talk about future dreams that I have and as I was kind of writing them down and just really thinking about them, I realized something. I realized kind of what it means to dream and how dreaming is so much different than goal setting, I think. They're similar and they're related, but they're not the same. So I wanna talk about that today, the difference between dreams and goals. I'm gonna talk about a few of my goals, and I also will be talking about how scary it is to set goals and why it is and how we can get past that fear. Just setting goals in general, like when I think about it, or if I you know, saw a podcaster talking about goal setting, I think I would instantly be turned off and scared To listen because of my own personal fear of failing things like that but also it just sounds so boring and so like tedious and so I promise that's not what our chats gonna be like at all so we'll first talk about that and then we're going to get into something a little bit more glitzy and glam we will pick up where we left off last week with that nameless series that I started where we're just asking questions and answering them debunking myths so continuing that chat from the white wedding dress phenomenon definitely go back and listen to that one if you haven't already. We'll be talking today about all things diamonds. When did these transparent rocks, as they were called in 1867, get their value? Why do we propose with them? Why are they so freaking expensive? We'll be talking about all those things today and it's much more interesting than one would think. When I first started researching it, I was like, this could totally be a flop because like who really knows why diamonds are so, like haven't they always been coveted and you know, something that people pay the big bucks for? And truthfully, no, they haven't always been like that. And so what changed the narrative? Where? Did they come from, all of those things we'll be talking about today on Thick and Thin. So yeah, we will get there, but back to the goals versus dreams comparison. We're going to start out here. So when I first sat down and started thinking about dreams that I have for myself and was trying to kind of bullet point them, I realized that dreams are kind of this greater, looser, hazier thing that we have that kind of holds goals. Goals are like, you know, nestled in there somewhere. But a dream is like a huge loose, I picture it kind of being like a cloud and a goal is just kind of like a, a golden nugget in that cloud, which I guess doesn't really make sense because a golden nugget would not stay in water vapor. But you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's like, it's definitely something that you can get out of a dream, but it is a different thing. It's a different beast altogether. Goals are basically always rooted in action, you know, with every goal you set, you need to kind of do something about it. You can't just sit there and twiddle your thumbs and dream about it, you know? A goal is a dream set in motion. Acting upon a goal is, you know, getting out there and doing something, getting your hands dirty, and it can be scary. Whereas dreams are a bit less driven all the time. It's a bit more open-ended because you don't really know where they'll go, if they'll ever come to fruition. But it's still just as important, and I'd argue that there is no such thing as a goal without a dream that began it all. You know, sitting in class daydreaming about making art and working in a job that I love was a dream, and that gave birth to me setting goals like finish college and get a job in New York City. And I've been really afraid of the word goal setting and the concept of setting goals for myself. And I think the reason for this is mostly because I have seen failure. I know what failure looks like. Maybe I haven't personally fallen too far in my professional life because it's really only just begun, but... I've seen relatives, you know, lose everything due to risky investments, due to the recession. I've seen some of my most favorite restaurants close, people on the news filing for bankruptcy, houses foreclosing. I might have not experienced these things firsthand, but I see the hurt. I know what it looks like, and I see the shame that these people carry, and this shame seems to stare down at me while I'm thinking about future goals. I also just consider how much more comfortable it would be if I had just decided to be content with where I am, with what I've done so far, and just kind of throw in the towel, call it a day, and just sit here with it all and be like, okay, this is enough, this is good. And I want to make a differentiation here. It's not that I'm not grateful or, you know, content with what I have. It's that I think that sometimes people convince themselves that they're just being content and simplistic, minimalist, those sorts of things. But they're actually just holding themselves back from accomplishing more because they're afraid. There's a difference. I've definitely found myself doing this. I've been in this camp before where I, out of fear, decide that, you know, my run is done. I've done all I can you know i'm clocking out of this and it's really it's fear driven it's not satisfaction driven like i'm satisfied it's that I'm fearful of continuing because I don't think I'll continue in a good way or it'll go up from here I just feel like I'll lose it all if I keep going it's kind of like deal or no deal have you ever seen that show it's um with what's his name Howie Mandel and let's not forget legendary case girl Meghan Markle from back in the day and in that show they'd be given this great offer like halfway through the show and they were told if they dropped out they'd win like 50 grand or something like that and yet the contestant would often decline and the audience would go wild they'd be like thank god the show is still going like this person didn't drop out and the person would you know decline and convince themselves basically that if they just pick the right case on their own like they don't need this like fancy offer if they just do it on their own and you know pick this the winning case they'll make 500 grand or even a million and their decision to stay in you know the audience would go wild like I said and and people would like go crazy for it, they love a risky situation. You know, it makes for good TV. People love taking risks on TV, but a risky situation in real life just is not as fun. And oftentimes people don't really cheer you on until you're met with success, and they don't cheer you on really if you're met with failure when you take a risk in real life. So I remind myself of this concept though. You know, I'm less afraid of failing than I am afraid of not giving myself a proper chance to succeed. Like what is more important to me, (laughs) failing or what's more scary to me, I suppose, failing or not even giving myself a chance to succeed. You know, if you're not giving yourself a chance at all, then there's just no possibility of success, you know, in, in this given industry or field that you're kind of scared of. And I would just hate to look back and see that while I was going through life, you know, complaining that everything else was inhibiting me and holding me back you know, everything besides me, it was like all these other things like, oh, timing, oh, my friends, oh, my parents, oh, geography, things like that. And I would hate to later on see so clearly in the rear view that the only thing really holding me back was myself and convincing myself that, you know, I'm, I'm kind of done and I'm going to drop out and be done with this or I'm not going to try because what happens, what, what will I do if I fail? How will I come back from that? How will I recover? And so when I quit my job at L'Oreal, anyone leaves um, or transfers to a new team in the corporate world a lot of times you get a little like send-off speech I feel like or maybe just at L'Oreal I don't know but I was standing up um, at my desk and my coworkers kind of all came around it was my last day I guess all eyes were on me and I was sweating I'm like oh my god how do I do a goodbye speech no one teaches you how to do that so I was standing at my desk and I was like you know thank you everyone for this opportunity said all the things that you know you should say when you had a great opportunity and you really did meet great people and you loved your work but you just don't feel like it's for you anymore. So I said all those things. And then I said something along the lines of, I'm giving myself the chance to see what I can do, what I'm capable of on my own. Because, you know, if you don't if you don't try, you'll, you'll truly never know what you're capable of. Long story short, and now whenever I say that, I think of Taylor Swift, but long story short, I wanna share some goals that I have for myself, goals that were bred from dreams. And I pray that these goals will not scare me or scare you or make me feel inferior if I don't reach them or like I failed. I hope that they will instead inspire me to be proud of myself. I find that my hardest days are made easier when I give myself reasons and remind myself of reasons to be proud of myself. Because even if you mess up, screw up, disappoint people, all the things... If you're still doing things and living in a way that is making you proud those things will fade into the distance and you won't think of them as much it's just the truth and not that you should compare yourself to everyone else but i must say you know generally just trying for something is more than half the world has ever done probably more than half of the world has really never tried for anything risky in their life. Even just giving something a shot, a lot of people haven't done, giving themselves a shot. And people obviously have different reasons for that. But what I'm trying to say here is trying for something, trying for something, anything is brave. And a lot of the world has become so numb, has given up their power and all of the passion they could ever have and won't allow themselves to try. They throw in the towel. They're like, ah, you know, I used to dream but then I became an adult and adults can't dream and they've eliminated all of their childlike tendencies. And I think I mentioned in a previous episode that I'm really striving to recover my inner child and who I used to be because that girl that I used to be oh my gosh I wish I could just bottle up her passion and like inject it into myself every few weeks because she had something I watch my old videos all the time and remind myself of who that person was and I'm really really trying to get her back and I think that I can if I just continuously give myself a chance and show up for myself and just try I just think if more people showed up for themselves, even just, you know, if the handful of you guys that listen to my podcast, if you all find one new way just to be proud of yourself today, show up for yourself in the future, stand up for yourself, just choosing yourself, imagine the domino effect that could happen. Anyway, (laughs) so that was just like my little intro speech, I guess. I have four goals that I wrote down on a sheet of paper and I want to read them to you guys. And you should not be confused with New Year's resolutions, okay? I want to make that very clear because I think New Year's resolutions are stupid, honestly. Sorry if that offends any of you guys, but I just don't think that you need a special like day to start things, especially after the year we had. I think ugh, just New Year's resolutions are so stressful. So I have four goals that I'm hoping to just accomplish at some point. There's no, I guess there is a timestamp on one of them, but for the most part, they're all kind of just when I can do it, but I am going to exert energy in the direction of accomplishing these goals. And these goals, I'm not afraid of because I know that I am capable of these things if I really just try. (laughs) Okay, so number one, in the next three years, I want to own property. That is my first goal. And that goal is kind of, you know, surrounded by this bigger dream of just having to, you know, no longer pay rent that just goes down the drain, it feels like, or into someone else's pocket because owning property is, you know, of course, a good investment. It's a good place for your money to be. And, you know, it's also something that just feels more worthwhile when you're spending, you know, you're paying towards your mortgage every month and not a rental payment that just kind of goes down the drain. And every like YouTube video I've watched on like smart financial decisions and like every, you know, big person on Instagram that I follow that like gives financial advice, they always say like try to own property. And I'm hoping (laughs) we can own property in new york city but alas things are so freaking expensive there but hopefully if i'm you know saving as much as i have been and just being super careful about things like you know i don't really spend super lavishly i don't think not trying to compare myself to anyone but i know myself and i know that i don't really like find joy in like designer purchases or super expensive things like i like buying things that i wear a lot and use a lot And when I wanna you know, shell out some cash and pay for something expensive, I know that it's something that I will be using like every day for a very long time. So yeah, that's just kind of how I spend. And so at this rate, I think I can own property in three years, I think it's possible. Number two, I wanna go on at least one solo trip when travel restrictions are lifted. This kind of sounds silly, but (laughs) it's something that I feel like a lot of us find ourselves kind of in. I feel like a lot of the times, When I travel, it's because one of my friends is like, hey, I wanna go here, do you wanna come? And it's never like, I wanna go here. And it's not that I don't organize trips, I just feel like I'm so go with the flow to a fault. Like (laughs) I'm very much down for anything and I think that's a good quality to have, don't get me wrong, but I think it does hold me back from having my own aspirations. And it's usually socially that I feel this way. Like usually I feel like with everything else, like I'm very much like driven and I I, I find myself being the one to initiate things like professionally and in a lot of realms. But when it comes to like, Traveling and like where we're going out, like to, to eat or to drink or whatever. I feel like a lot of times I'm just like, you know, going with the flow of what my friends want to do. And I don't know when I can say I'm going to do this because of course COVID and everything. But I think, you know, in the next couple of years, I want to go on a like big solo trip to somewhere like really cool and just go by myself because I want to do it and because I want to see a place and not because my friends are going. Yeah, I don't think that there's anything wrong with like tagging along, you know, on trips and things like that with your friends, especially if your friends are like much better planners. But there's something so liberating about going somewhere because you want to do it and not anyone else. And you don't have to like work around anyone else's schedules and whatnot. Number three, I want to give YouTube more of a chance again. And so the goal here is to come up with a more consistent schedule, like a daily or not a daily. Oh my God, can you imagine? A weekly upload day and upload every week on that day. I used to do that up until like midway through college, I was doing that. I think, yeah, all through high school and into, I think, sophomore year of college. Sophomore year is when things kind of like hit the fan because I was in the sorority house and it was really hard for me to record in my sorority house room because I shared it with two other girls. So it was always like a mad dash to film when they weren't there. And I was It was just very stressful. And I also was like shifting into having a social life from high school, not having one. So it was very hard for me to balance everything, whatever, not making excuses for myself. But somewhere along those lines, I fell off the wagon of uploading every Friday. And I I do miss having like a consistent weekly upload schedule. So I want to do that probably in the new year. So call it a resolution, I guess. But the dream there is to feel more organized, accomplished, and fall back in love with the platform, because I have fallen so out of love with YouTube, it's crazy, so I need to get back into that, and then number four, okay, so the last one, I'm not going to say any of these are silly, but this one's like kind of silly, I want to go on a few walks weekly, like I want to get out of my house and just go for a walk, like not like I'm going to go for a run every day, all these things, I just want to go for a walk, put on my sneakers, get out there and just walk, listen to a podcast or just let my mind wander and just walk and you know the dream here is to find a way to move my body that i genuinely enjoy and can stick to because i'm one of those people that gets like super hooked on like running or something and then i'm like okay i'm i'm sick of that or I just don't feel like it. And walking is something that I I can't really say that about because it is strenuous to a certain extent if you're walking like uphill or something like that, but it is something that is easy and accessible. And I have like super bad joint pain and stuff because of Lyme disease. So running tends to like wear me down, whereas I feel like walking is, is easier on my joints and things. So it's something that I can keep up with and it's a good like lifestyle thing. So I wanna go on a few walks weekly, that's a goal. So yeah, those are my four goals. Like I said, nothing too scary. I feel like these are all super achievable. You know, you should set goals for yourself that are far off and and challenge you, but know when it's something that's just impossible because then you'll just end up feeling sad if you have no prospects of achieving that goal. So yeah, these are my goals. I highly recommend if you have a journal, if I have hopefully inspired you at this point to get a journal Write down your goals, even just a few things, because it'll be fun to look back on those and see how you've either blew them out of the water or you're still working on them, but you kind of revisit the person you were when you wrote them, and it's just a nice little time capsule, so definitely think about it. So yeah, while I'm trying my best to accomplish these, I also won't pressure myself. I'm not going to rush my process, and nor should you. Yeah, what's that metaphor? Pressure creates diamonds, Fire refines gold. I think that's it. Oh my God, that's the best segue I've ever come up with because we are talking about pressure and diamonds. Oh my God.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today, or visit Angie.com. That's angi.com. Hey guys, it's Cheyenne
2: Davis. You may know me from MTV's Teen Mom OG or Think Cloud crew podcast. I'm here with my dad, Papa Floyd, to tell you about our new podcast, Unfiltered Kitchen.
0: The kitchen is the hub of the household for many of us. The one-stop shop for conversations both big and small. Cheyenne and I have been having open conversations about all aspects of life in our kitchen since well before she was able to see over the counter.
2: And now we're inviting you into our own kitchen as a part of the family.
0: Unfiltered Kitchen is a two-way street. I share my advice on cocktails, cooking, parenting, and the lessons I've learned.
2: And I inform my dad what it's like to raise kids today, how generational barriers affect us, and the joys of being a daughter. Well, you're a daughter. Get ready for a whole lot of unfiltered advice. You can take it or leave it, but you're
0: never going to leave this table feeling hungry for more.
2: Listen to Unfiltered Kitchen wherever you get your
1: podcasts. So let's chat diamonds, okay? But let's first remind ourselves though, everyone, gather around. We're going to remind ourselves of the iconic how to lose a guy in 10 days plotline. Kate Hudson's, you know, iconic yellow dress, Matthew McConaughey's frost yourself campaign. Let's remind ourselves of this iconic movie and unrelated to where I'm going with this, but I simply cannot believe that Rotten Tomatoes had the audacity to give this movie a 42% rating. Like, justice for How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. This is totally my bad days movie. Like, what I put on when the day just could not get any worse, and the only thing that'll make it even a bit better, like even a tinge, is a tinge a word? Even a little bit better is this movie and a pint of Ben and Jerry's, and that is all I need to revive the day. But I have this movie basically memorized by heart. You know, that scene where he's in that marketing meeting with the boss and those two snarky coworker ladies, and he goes, Ladies of New York, frost yourselves. And the camera like zooms in on his face, like that iconic scene. Let's talk about that. Frost yourselves. You know, by frost yourselves, even though he was this like major womanizer at this point in the movie, he means, you know, women, buy yourself a mountain of diamonds, cover yourself with diamonds. Or find a man to do it for you. Just someone buy the freaking diamonds. Like that was kind of his goal there because he's in marketing. And this moment in the movie is even more important to me now that I've figured out the true story behind diamond rings, especially of the engagement sort. And we're going to talk about that today. But I just want you guys to have this kind of nugget in your mind, this meeting, because we're going to come back to it in a little bit. So background of diamonds though. How on earth does one create a diamond. Well, we're not going to talk about those like the man-made ones, but how is a diamond created naturally? I guess is where we're going to go. So, it's made with pressure. That's true. You know, it's not a myth. You know, that quote that I said, the cute quote, like pressure creates diamonds. And there's so many like quotes like that, like under pressure, you know, you'll be made into a diamond and all these fun things, but it's true, pressure creates diamonds. And I found this amazing documentary on Netflix called Diamonds Explained. And that is what I'll be referencing a few times throughout this episode. They had great stuff. They interviewed scientists, talked about like the real nitty gritty stuff behind diamonds. And in the documentary, they talked about pressure. In the beginning and how diamonds are physically made within the earth growing up I really wanted to be a geologist so I really did a lot of like intense like 12 year old research into like I was 12 not 12 years of research into like rocks and into where in the earth things were made and so I could go real deep into this but we're just gonna lay it out in simple terms because like who the hell has time for that basically where diamonds are formed within the earth uh, well first of all Scientists measure pressure in a measurement called pascals. And where diamonds are formed within the earth, the pressure is five to six gigapascals. So a lot of pascals, a lot of freaking pascals. And in the documentary, a geochemist named Karen Smith, which is eerily similar to Karen Smith from Mean Girls, but she says that five to six gigapascals is like having 80 elephants standing on your big toe. That is the pressure equivalent that exists where diamonds are formed. And so over 25 million years ago, diamonds essentially shot up to the surface of the earth in a series of mini explosions or like huge explosions, I guess, but they looked mini, I guess, from afar. And after they settled, they laid unnoticed for millions of years. And the earliest piece of diamond jewelry was found in Afghanistan. It was crafted in about 300 BC. So those are kind of the humble beginnings of diamonds, but the first diamond engagement ring on record was reportedly given by Archduke Maximilian of Austria. And he was apparently the first to propose with a diamond engagement ring. He gave one to Mary of Burgundy in 1477. But this, like the first white wedding dress, as we learned last week, was basically just a coincidence. It wasn't considered tradition at this point yet. But this wasn't a new phenomenon, giving your wife to be a ring to symbolize engagement. This was a custom that went back slightly further in time. In the 14th century, a man with the means to might even give his future wife a ring engraved with both of their names. And in return, she might offer him a stocking. And this basically is a tradition that referred to the fact that he was going to get to see her legs soon. Because in this time of, you know, wearing the the full skirts and the gowns and things, men never really saw a woman's legs until he was married to her. And so Diamonds would have to wait a little bit longer to make their big debut as, you know, the engagement stone. And they didn't make their full entrance to the scene until the diamond rush 400 years later. Colorless and bland in comparison to stones like rubies and emeralds and also extremely difficult to find unless you were a monarch, diamonds weren't really all that popular until they were discovered in South Africa in the mid-1800s. And enter the key player in the reason why diamond rings basically gained all of its initial hype and secrecy and all of those things, Cecil Rhodes. Cecil was a British mining magnate and politician in southern Africa. He would eventually serve as prime minister of the Cape Colony, which was a British colony established in 1806 in what is now South Africa. But before all of this, before all the diamonds and the political success, he was actually just a sickly teenager. He was extremely unwell. He was sent to South Africa by his family when he was 17 in the hope that the climate might improve his health. And it might not have really improved his health all that much as he passed away pretty young at the age of 48 due to heart failure, but it did improve his wealth. See what I did there? Not his health, but his wealth. We won't talk too much more about Cecil, though, in this episode because through research, I actually found that he was extremely racist and problematic, and so I won't be giving him a spotlight here in this episode This is all about the diamond industry and the diamond trade and things like that and not about a racist guy named Cecil, so we're not going to talk too much more about him, but he is a key player in this story, unfortunately, so yeah, just wanted to say that. So here is how the diamond rush began. Diamonds were first discovered in southern Africa in the mid-1860s on the farm of two brothers. Their names were Nicholas and Diederik De Beer. Cecil's main tactic in the beginning was controlling the supply of diamonds. His goal was to buy up all of his competitors' mines in order to get all the diamonds for himself. So in 1871, Cecil Rhodes bought a claim to the De Beers' mine. Kind of going along with his plan to buy up all of his competitors, he bought their mine and it was super lucrative. So with this as a financial cushion, he was able to buy up most of the mines in southern Africa. And alongside a business partner, Charles Rudd, he founded the De Beers Mining Company. It's unclear why he chose De Beers as the name. I mean, I get it. It was the name of the brothers whose land he essentially stole he bought so I get why he chose that name specifically but I feel like you'd have the common sense to change you know name it after yourself or something and not be like here's the stolen land or the okay he didn't steal it he bought it but he like essentially took these brothers land as his own and then named the company after them it's very interesting I mean I don't think he did it out of a good place I think it was just like okay this is just a good name I don't know but essentially he started this mining company by the time Cecil died in 1909 Two, De Beers controlled 90% of the world's, the world's rough diamond production and distribution. In just two decades, he was able to acquire this much. That's insane. But it was a man named Ernest Oppenheimer who really shook things up for De Beers and the entire diamond industry. Ernest basically paid his way into the De Beers board of directors very unclear why because he actually notably worked for a competing diamond production company so i think he was just maybe trying to get the inside scoop or something i don't know not really sure of the full story here but he must have seen some serious value into beers because by 1927 he was chairman of the board And it was under Oppenheimer that they established exclusive contracts with suppliers and buyers. Exclusive meaning they couldn't go anywhere else, so they really created this diamond monopoly. They were really the only player. And then the 1930s happened, and this was understandably a very hard time for the diamond industry. It was the Great Depression, of course, and not many people found themselves... In the market for diamonds when they could barely put food on the table. And so De Beer's goal at this time under Oppenheimer was to create demand for diamonds. But how? How could you create demand if, like I said, you could barely put food on the table? Why? Would people want diamonds during this time? How could families ever consider purchasing diamonds? Many people out of desperation were selling their diamonds, putting more into the market, increasing the supply so prices would be even lower over time. And so this, my friends, is where the magic of marketing comes into play. De Beers hired a marketing agency. Their goal was to somehow get people to think of diamonds as a symbol of love, that diamonds equaled love. Before this, it was something that really only the rich and famous, the monarchs had. It didn't seem at all achievable for normal people to have diamonds, basically. It wasn't trendy at this point. So how would they get people to think of diamonds as a symbol of love? Here is the slogan that they came up with. A diamond is forever. And through strategic advertising from De Beers, made by this marketing agency, Men were convinced that the size of the diamond in their chosen engagement ring showed how much they loved their fiancé. The bigger the diamond, the bigger the love, etc. And this had never been a thing before. Diamond engagement rings were really not a thing. It was always kind of a hand-me-down ring, a gold band, things like that. And diamonds were never really featured in engagement rings prior to this point. And so this concept of the bigger the diamond, the bigger the love, you know, having a bigger diamond engagement ring means more love for your fiance, things like that played into the competitive complex that all human beings have. And I argue that men have it worse sometimes, most of the time. I'm kind of generalizing, but this is my personal opinion. You know, men having this competitive complex of being like, oh my God, I need to get the biggest diamond for my fiance, etc. it was a huge selling point for them to you know, go in and get this huge diamond. And it started quite a frenzy. Consider this the diamond rush part two. They created what would be one of the most successful advertising campaigns in the history of advertising. And here is what it looked like. Mind you, this was all during the Great Depression. Like, this is insane that they were able to generate buzz. Of course, it was slow, but then it increased rapidly over time. But they were able to somehow create a frenzy for expensive diamonds during the Great Depression. It's really crazy. So what they did was they ran these print ads that featured a piece of priceless art. So works by Picasso, Salvador Dali, etc. And in the copy of the ad, equated diamonds to works of art. They said a diamond is forever, like treated as a work of art, something that is priceless, something that you know, is loved, is respected, cherished, things like that. And they ran commercials as well with these sparkling diamonds paired with romantic couples, kind of, you know, subliminally saying like, oh, if you have diamonds, you will have love, you will please your partner, things like that. And, you know, we're used to jewelry ads being framed like this. With a lot of romance, things like that, I think of um, every kiss begins with K, K jewelers. Like, every kiss begins with K. It's very romantic. It's very much saying, like, if you give a diamond, you will get a kiss. Things like that. And so we're used to this now, but De Beers was the trailblazer in this industry. This was the first of its time, back in the 30s. No one had seen anything like it before. And in Gone with the Wind, which came out in 1939, it's a classic film, Scarlett O'Hara pleads for a diamond ring from Rhett. This is an iconic scene in the movie and this movie was also kind of the first of its time sort of racy for the times, really something. It generated a lot of buzz and so it also generated a lot of buzz for the diamond industry. And through many films, celebrities, people amping up the trend in, you know, the 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 magazines, the the page 6 of its day, diamonds exploded in popularity. Think Marilyn Monroe in that hot pink dress proclaiming diamonds are a girl's best friend that whole shebang and this technique of planting diamonds in movies and on the hands of celebrities is actually eerily similar to the influencer industry as we know it like product placement and having you know influencers wear things or celebrities wear things and then that's how the buzz is generated that's how trends are began that's kind of how things were so over time de Beers was able to glamorize the diamond Specifically, the diamond engagement ring. And as it went on, you know, later advertising campaigns got even more specific. They cast diamonds in a very particular light. They said in a very subliminal, yet obvious way, having diamonds, especially on your engagement ring and big at that, kind of completed the perfect suburban lifestyle picture, being something super comfortable, well-off, safe, things like that. And this was something that many Americans aspired to have in the 50s. And the bigger the engagement ring, the more you were this picture. And so according to the documentary that I referenced, by 1990, 80% of American brides got an engagement ring. And the campaigns were such a hit in the US, De Beers tried it out in Japan too and China and the same results followed. But their efforts weren't always successful. I do want to highlight a few of De Beers' advertising flops. In the 80s, they tried to make women gifting diamonds to men a thing, like a trend. And they ran some campaigns where men were gifted diamonds from women and it totally flopped. And another campaign that was pretty eerily similar to the Frost Yourself Matthew McConaughey concept, which is why I referenced that in the beginning, they encouraged women to buy themselves diamonds for their other hand, like for their, their right hand, and that also flopped. The primary consumer of diamonds at this time Were men buying them for their wives, buying them for their mistresses, buying them just for the women in their life. And so De Beers learned that from their failures and they really honed in on that. Their message shifted from the bigger the diamond, the bigger the love, to the bigger the diamond, the bigger the success, the more success you had as a man in your career. And this was very smart. They hit men where it hurt. And if you've ever heard the concept that an engagement ring should cost two months of the person proposing's salary, De Beers came up with that. Their commercials literally said verbatim, how else could 2 months' salary last forever? And they flashed the De Beers logo and said, like, here is how your two-month salary could last forever in a diamond ring on your wife's hand, things like that. So that was a pretty revolutionary concept that a lot of diamond sellers thereafter would adopt. And so another way that De Beers marketed themselves as the superior diamond seller and kept it fresh, I actually had never heard of this before, but in describing diamonds and looking at a diamond, kind of evaluating and pricing it, there are four C's involved. Cut, color, clarity, and carat. And these are the things that determine a diamond's value. The four C's were made up by a gem institute in the 1940s called the Gemological institute of america and doesn't that sound kind of like a made-up word like gemological who came up with that anyway but this institute formed this 4c kind of uh certification in the 40s and de beers latched onto this concept immediately and promoted it on all of their ads they had it in like the lower left hand corner of their ads proclaiming their diamonds as the best money could buy in accordance to the four c's cut color clarity and carrot. So they kept getting super crafty with their ads and continued. And of course they hit some bumps, the blood diamond controversies overseas, a lot of stuff happened in the industry, shook things up. And so eventually the monopoly era ended and De Beers is no longer the biggest player in the diamond industry and I had never even heard of it before researching. That might be just me not really knowing much about or having many diamonds of my own, but De Beers' tactics of controlling supply, creating demand, and getting people's competitive juices flowing are still used by so many diamond sellers today. According to De Beers' 2019 Insight Report, they still put out Insight Reports every year about the diamond industry. They're still really respected in the diamond industry. They reported that the proportion of U.S. brides who acquire a diamond engagement ring as of 2019 is 72%, so still pretty high. I did say that one stat that in the 90s, 80% of American brides got a diamond engagement ring, so it has dropped a little bit. I think people are more so going for kind of different gems now, you know, kind of spicing things up like an emerald or just different stones because of course when things get too mainstream on trend, you know, people like to shake it up and according to The Knot, $5,900 is the national average cost of an engagement ring, which I don't know if I feel like that's high. I feel like it is a little high in what I, I just feel like it should be like lower than that, but I guess going along with the two-month salary thing, I feel like that Definitely makes sense. I just think of the nation as a whole, and I feel like that feels kind of high, but I guess not. I don't really know, honestly. I would need to talk to people that buy rings. But as we know, the appeal of diamonds doesn't solely lie in how beautiful they are. It's also how expensive they are. Paying for a diamond for your bride or groom kind of means that you've made it in some way. It gives a person a real sense of accomplishment. And De Beers did a great job of making this a thing. They also did a great job of controlling the diamond supply, making them super expensive and hard to get, and that really hasn't changed all too much. You know, the precedent had been set with them, and so now diamonds are high in price. People expect them to be high in price, despite being much easier to get your hands on these days. Like, in the the old days, De Beers really controlled the supply to the point where it was really hard to get them. They kind of made it seem like they were harder to get, and like, of course increase the demand that way and so you know despite being much easier to get your hands on diamonds now like you can just walk into any store and get a diamond you know they still have held their value in the sense that people know that they are worth some serious cash and they will pay that In this episode, I've focused largely on the advertising marketing success of diamonds and how they rose to popularity. Genuinely, because I was curious about them and wanted to know why, where the hype came from, and all of those things. But it would be untruthful not to share the negative sides of diamonds and the dark side of diamonds and how things went really south. After like the 1980s. So from the 1980s, 90s into the early 2000s, and still today, blood diamonds are a sad truth of the diamond industry and something that is a real problem. Basically, what is a blood diamond? So a blood diamond is also called a conflict diamond, according to a source in Britannica. It's defined by the UN as any diamond that is mined in areas controlled by forces opposed to the legitimate internationally recognized government of a country and that is sold to fund military action against that government. So basically, blood diamonds are illegal, illegal diamonds, and a lot of times they fund well of course illegal activities and they ignite this conflict with rival groups trying to get control of the diamonds and sell them into places like America if they are not in America and use the profits to fund their illegal activities and it results in a lot of bloodshed hence blood diamonds lots of deaths and lots of abuses trigger warning so rape, use of child soldiers, things of that nature, really horrible stuff. And a lot of these such diamonds have been thrown into circulation in the world. And a lot of people don't know that these are blood diamonds, that the diamonds that they are using in their engagement ring and on their necks are blood diamonds. Because when a diamond is converted from its super raw form into something sparkly, and as we would recognize a diamond of any sort being, it's very hard to differentiate whether or not this diamond is a blood diamond or an ethically Sourced and created, and uh, you know, no abuse involved diamond. And so, I found this amazing source from Time that lists how to find out if your diamond is a blood diamond. So, they firstly say you should ask your jeweler where the diamonds were mined. And so, a responsible, credible jeweler. And of course, finding a responsible, ethical jeweler isn't really a walk in the park, maybe, because people will, of course, proclaim that they are such and that they are doing the right thing. And, you know, truthfully, they might not know if they are or a number of things. And so the best way to do it is just to grill your jeweler. You know, make sure they know exactly all of the different places this diamond has been, you know, every single step of the way. Where has the diamond been? Has it ever been in these? countries these places where conflicts have arisen and you know by purchasing this diamond am I helping out this rebel group etc that still might exist today things like that so just grilling the jeweler really asking questions when maybe it's you know not received well that probably gives you a pretty clear answer as to whether the jeweler knows where this diamond is from or not and if they don't know that's usually a sign that maybe it's not a blood diamond all of the time, but it's something where you should not be purchasing this diamond if you don't know where it was from or where it was sourced. And also ask for documentation, for certificates verifying the diamonds, you know, where they've been in the world, things like that. And I do actually want to mention the Kimberly process real quick. So the Kimberly process uh, was something that was born from a 2000 meeting in Kimberley, South Africa. That is where it was held and basically the world's largest diamond producers and buyers met to discuss blood diamonds and the growing concerns with ethical diamonds and the threat of consumers boycotting diamonds altogether. There were a lot of advocacy groups that were really up in arms about this understandably so because there was a lot of shady business happening a lot of conflict that was being furthered by just someone's desire to buy their wife a diamond things like that so they needed to meet over it and it was over the sale of rough uncut diamonds to fund the brutal civil wars of angola and sierra leone and this is courtesy of time by 2003 they said 52 governments as well as international advocacy groups, had ratified the Kimberley process, this scheme, which basically, in simple terms, um, made it so diamonds had to have these passports kind of issued from the place that they came from that would go with each shipment of the rough diamonds that were shipped around the world. And countries had to prove that their diamonds were conflict free. And if they couldn't, they were taken out of the diamond trade and they were unable to sell their diamonds. But a lot of sources I found online, including this one from time that i'll have linked basically said that the kimberly process has helped things become more ethical but it's not the one-stop shop it needs to be revisited it needs to be uh, looked at differently maybe made a bit more strenuous to get through um, something like that because although uh, according to time 25 percent of the world's diamonds were illegally traded Uh, before 2003 now it's only about five to ten percent which is still if you consider how many diamonds there are in the world that's still quite a lot and so it does cover quite a few different sorts of conflicts and barring diamonds being sold that were involved in such conflicts but it doesn't cover everything it doesn't cover unfair labor and human rights abuses they don't disqualify diamonds from being sold so these things are happening over and over again and who knows what we will never know the full story of what goes on um, unless we are there firsthand but it it's just horrific even now what probably goes on in these mines and in these these working areas and so I think that the Kimberly process does need to be pushed further does need to be revisited now that it's 2020 and years have passed and I think that it's still so much of an issue so it's good to know this darker side of diamonds and how we really do have a responsibility to find diamonds that are ethical and that are not blood diamonds in any way, shape, or form. And so there's companies like Tiffany's, De Beers, even now, um, that have instituted this strict sourcing policy for their brands and making sure that they are not involved in this. There's this brand called Brilliant Earth, which was created in 2005, and it's one of the first jewelry companies to make responsible sourcing of diamonds a major selling point to their brand. So that is a good one to consider. I'm going to go on their site after I'm done recording and peruse. Not that I can afford anything, but I just thought that that was really awesome you can also consider maybe a vintage style ring so having a ring passed down from your grandparents or something like that I always love hearing stories of when someone will propose with their grandma's engagement ring or something like that like I always think that's so special and so that's an option of of course as well and then there's synthetic diamonds lab created diamonds they're called many different things artificial cultivated, synthetics, things like that, Um, lots of different words, man-made, lots of different ways to say that the diamond was grown in a lab, which honestly, there's some really gorgeous lab-grown diamonds. I would not write that off. Um, I'm really not sure what I will get as a diamond engagement ring someday, but I do definitely want to make sure it is not a blood diamond and I hope that you will consider that as well. Blood diamonds are definitely a real problem. We should be knowing where our diamonds are coming from. This is something years ago before hearing about blood diamonds for the first time, I never would have considered, and I know that probably a vast majority of America doesn't really care or know about blood diamonds, so it's good to know where your diamonds are coming from. Are they coming from places that are experiencing conflicts right now? It's easy to do a quick Google search and see, um, you know, if they tell you the country, you look it up, you see if there's conflict or if there has been recently, and would you purchasing this diamond somehow benefit this conflict that is going on overseas? Things like that. So just knowing, doing the research, it's super important. And so I just wanted to say that because, of course, there is a dark side to the diamond industry that. I didn't cover in the beginning part of this episode, and it's important to know. And something notable I did wanna share just after pouring over lots of different photos and videos and imagery of the diamond rush that I covered in the earlier part of the episode. Um, You know, I think it isn't largely spoken about in these pieces and things done on the times that the majority of the people working in these mines and really just, just working endless hours probably horrible conditions, things of that nature during that time and even today are black and brown people and I don't want to discredit the fact that they were treated horribly at this time during the diamond rush um, in the 1800s and even still today there are horrible conditions out there and it often seems like it's a few old white men that are in charge of these industries in some way, shape, or form, especially here in the U.S., and knowing that people overseas have hurt to further this industry and still do to this day, especially those who have very few rights um, in certain countries, people of certain classes. I just wanted to share that I don't think any of it was right and is right, and as I did mention earlier, Cecil Rhodes key player from the initial diamond rush he was also super problematic he was racist he was an imperialist really caused a lot of hurt and suffering for many people and that is why i didn't want to really cover him much in this episode and so there's a lot of hurt a lot of hate that has gone into the diamond industry as we know it and it's important to know all sides So, honestly, guys, I started off by saying this episode would be dazzling. And while it was, I think that it's always important to know that the most dazzling of tales, of people, of diamonds, there's always something else there. There's always another part to the story that we need to hear and need to know. And so, here, the big story was not only, of course, the blood diamond reality that we live in and need to be really cognizant of, but then also just the, the power that advertising has over us as a human, as humankind. I mean, you, <laughs> you see so many messages per day. I remember seeing this stat somewhere that you see like over like 100,000 messages a day or something like that. Messages as in like things that are demanding your attention from advertisers in some way, shape or form. Like even just me sitting here uh recording this episode like I'm seeing all of these different logos from companies on you know I have the Olipop can with the Olipop logo staring at me I have my Canon camera I have all of these different logos messages things demanding my attention things trying to remind me that they exist and that I should contribute to them and it's it's All something that was bred from advertising, from marketing, from, you know, people sitting around tables and discussing how can we accomplish this objective? How can we get people to convert to our product? Or how can we drive brand love for our product? There's all of these different objectives and goals that marketing heads sit around a table and talk about. And I know this firsthand from my previous life in corporate, you know, we would sit around tables and discuss, you know, how could we get our consumers to uh, consider this Their life when they use that. Like, how could we have them or make them convince them? I suppose to convert to our product from this. Or how can we continue to show up for our for our customer and make sure that they always come back? And. All of these different objectives and things and a lot of what we see on a day-to-day basis, a lot of these messages are a direct product from someone out there saying, I know our consumer will do this and knowing our behavior before we even really act. And it's so interesting. Honestly, I really, you know, of course, everything has a deeper story to it and we shouldn't always take things as a glamorous tale. But I will say marketing and advertising, like that whole concept is so endlessly interesting to me. And I want to cover more stories like this one because the De Beers concept of, of a diamond is forever, just iconic. Of course, now the market's much more saturated. There's a lot more jewelry brands out there kind of expressing a very similar sort of concept. And so they did get overshadowed in many ways, but I do think it's it's, you're always trying to get ahead and think of what, what is going to be the next thing, what is going to be the next trend, and the next thing that people will latch on to and obsess over. And it's so interesting when you think about it and try to get ahead. So anyway guys I hope you guys enjoyed this episode I hope that it really gave you some serious food for thought I hope you will consider when looking for diamonds in your future or your present to ask questions ask the hard questions figure out where they're from and know that not every diamond is a beautiful dazzling thing with no history so that is all I wanted to share today guys hope you have a really safe holiday if you celebrate and I will talk to you all in next week's episode bye